I'm on. Okay, good to hear. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and um, I'll say a short prayer for this study. Father, I do ask that you would bless the study of your word this morning. Uh, I pray that uh, you would help illuminate us from the word of God, that we would be um, uh, able to uh, seek your face and to seek more of your work in our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So I usually try to bring, begin each um, lesson kind of summary and even just trying to help you understand what some of the issues going on. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20 basically says, Do not quench the Spirit and do not despise prophecies. Um, and so, uh, and even in our passage uh, as well, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll be getting to here in a moment, it, it's you are to desire the higher gifts. So, uh, the question then becomes, um, are we despising prophecies by not believing in the continuing gift of prophecy? That's really the question, okay? And it really comes down to, what is the relationship of prophecy to the Bible? Um, and you guys may not be familiar with some of uh, these theologies, but there's a, a really good professor, uh, teacher, Wayne Grudem. He's got his own systematic theology, and uh, he's, he's a great guy, very evangelical, very biblical-minded but he actually says that there's like two different levels of prophecy. There's, there's, there's like the Old Testament prophecy. And the Old Testament prophecy was on par with Scripture. So you would, you would say prophecy in the Bible would be equated. They, they'd be e even. There's not really any difference between a prophecy and Scripture. But then he gets, he's, he believes that the Bible has been completed. It's, there, there's no longer any new scripture being written. So he says, but prophecies still continue. And so he develops a sort of New Testament prophecy that more has to do with like, uh, more uh, specific application in someone's life. Um, hearing some sort of word from the Lord that I could give to Benji. Benji's getting ready to preach, you know, and, and God gives me some kind of word that says, Benji, the Lord has told me he's going to speak through you today and he's going to give you some a powerful exposition and, and people are going to get saved through your, your preaching today. And that would be like a prophecy. We wouldn't put it on the level of Scripture, but it is like this, this uh, special word of God to Benji that he can then use and apply to himself. So, um. So, really, the, the, the question really becomes, are there two different levels of prophecy anticipated in Scripture? And then, um, which I would argue the answer to that is no. The uh, Bible never really talks about a, it never reinterprets prophecy. It never says, okay, this is the way it used to be, this is the way it is now. It doesn't do that. So, I come down differently than him on that. But the idea of despising prophecy, if prophecies are continuing to occur, 
and we deny that they are continuing to occur, then the cessationist is despising prophecy. But we could flip it around. If prophecies are no longer continuing, and the prophecies that we have had have now become the Bible, then if you set your focus on these new prophecies that are false, and take them away from the prophecy of Scripture itself, then those who are, are taking their focus off of the Bible are the ones despising prophecy. So it goes both ways. And, and I think that it's really important for us to say, like, if you've got a, an already existing prophecy that is now Scripture, so for instance, 2 Peter 1, you can turn there if you want, 20 and 21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, see how quickly he connects prophecy and Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, So no, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So very sim- he's just equating prophecy with Scripture, and he's saying that it's coming from the voice of God through the prophet. Revelation 1.3, you can turn there if you want. We'll be preaching on this in another week. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So there again, the whole book of Revelation is called a prophecy. So we would say that if you, if you neglect and don't read or don't study the book of Revelation, you could be guilty of despising prophecy. Right? It's not just, you see, if you uh, craft the argument in the assumption that new prophecies are existing, then to despise prophecies is to, to not believe that those are existing. But if, if the prophecies that are spoken of are the scriptures, then despising prophecy would be to not submit yourself to the word of God. Okay? Um, now, even though... I would argue that new prophets are no longer being uh, 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 given this gift. There's not new prophets today. What we should expect are false prophets. You can turn to 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And in 1 John 4, 1, which is one of the later books of the New Testament, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And I think we talked about this some last week, but in Deuteronomy 13 it really explains how do you know whether someone is a true prophet or a false prophet. And typically you would think, well, there's a couple of things. um, Are they doing miraculous signs to accompany their their preaching? Like uh, Elijah praying that the rain would stop and it stops for three and a half years, something supernatural like that. But in Deuteronomy 13... 
It actually says that God may allow false prophets into your midst who can actually do miraculous signs and wonders. And God says that he would allow that to happen to test their hearts to see whether they would adhere to and cling to the revealed truth of Scripture. That's the, that's the point. He says, listen, if any prophet, I don't care if he's like raising the dead, if he actually calls you to go against what's in the Scripture, false prophet. That's your ultimate standard. So having a clear, defined Bible is very important because that is what determines how do we know if someone ever is speaking the truth, whether they're a prophet or just anyone talking, it's the Bible. And to have a completed Scripture is really helpful if you're going to define that, you know, what, what is the false prophet. So, um, now, I brought this out in my, we're getting into 1 Corinthians again. I brought this out in my, uh, sermon, so I th- I'm just going to try to do this. <clears throat> I believe that one of the most should I say damning aspects of charismatic thinking is I believe that they change the nature of faith. And I realize this is me just kind of talking, it's not expositing, but it's me thinking about this. We'll get into 1 Corinthians 12 here in just a moment in 13. But I believe that faith has been fundamentally changed. Let me give you an example of this. My grandfather, actually Robin's grandfather, who was here last week, Verlis, he comes from a Pentecostal family. His mom was Pentecostal anyway. So a lot of his sisters... Still very much charismatic, very much Pentecostal. Well, my, my grandfather, Burles, his wife, my grandmother, uh, mother-in-law, I get this all right, she got cancer when she was 55 years old. And uh, what did I say, grandfather? Yeah, my father-in-law, thank you, we get it all right. My father-in-law, but my mother-in-law is the one who got cancer. And he, his sisters came to her throughout her struggle with cancer and repeatedly told her that if she had enough faith, she would be healed. And that the only reason she was not being healed is because she didn't have enough faith. Now, if you knew Brenda... She loved the Lord, and she believed that healing could take place. Um, She, and this is my opinion, died as strong in her faith as any other saint I've seen. Her confidence in the righteousness of Christ her continued humility uh, before the Lord, her even confidence that the Lord could heal her um, was 
was palpable. I mean, it was real. We sat with her and talked with her, and even in her death, she was extremely focused on other people rather than herself. She wanted uh, others to, to trust in the Lord. Um, so, here's, here's what I want to say. She continued to have faith in the face of God not doing what she was asking him to do. You see that? That's, that's what I think God wants us to do. And she would even acknowledge to you that her faith was imperfect. Right? So uh, the very nature of faith in us is always imperfect. I believe, help my unbelief. You know, that kind of mentality. And faith continues even in the midst of not seeing the results of what you're looking for. Okay? But in the charismatic understanding... It is the perfection of faith upon which everything hinges. But it is, the, it is the stopping of faith because once you get what you, what you want, you no longer need to have faith. Right? We prayed for your, your ear to heal. Next week it's healed. You don't need faith that your ear is going to be healed. Right? It's already healed. But if next week you come in, and your ear is still not healed, you're questioning, did God hear the prayer? Is there something I've done wrong? Is he, maybe God's not being God. I mean, you have all these continued doubts. And the, the faith is, do you continue to trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God, even though you haven't seen what he wanted you, what you prayed for? And I think that in the charismatic movement, they want in, at the same time to exalt the importance of faith and at the same time cut it off. So in other words, in a charismatic understanding, how do you know whether you are filled with the Spirit? We speak in tongues. And the tongues is a guarantee that you're filled with the Spirit. So do you ever need faith anymore that you're being filled with the Spirit? No, because you got the, you've got the result, the outward sign. Where I would say that every day of your life, you're pleading with God to fill you with His Spirit, all the while wondering why He hasn't given you... Absolute victory over sin, complete joy, you're still struggling, you're still seeking, and you're still believing that he is going to continue to give you work of the Spirit, even without seeing it all the time. So it, the charismatic movement focuses on faith, all the while by, I believe, changing the very nature of what faith is. Yes. Uh, let's bring her a microphone. It's funny because, uh, just so you guys know, she probably doesn't want me to say any of this, but, but um, Tanya has come out of a very strong charismatic emphasis. And I actually think she's thought through these things even beyond how I've thought through them because they've been personal struggles of her own. So I've even said to her, not that I'm doing this right now, but I've even said, maybe you should come up here and kind of teach a little bit about this because you have really good insight for us to understand. So anyway, that's why I wanted her to have the microphone on this. Go ahead, Tanya.
faith is, is, is actually looked at as a force because they, if I can say it concisely, um, the reason why it's such a big thing is that it's, it's a big thing in general, obviously, is faith, but it's as though they're see they what we are taught, what we come to believe is that we have the uh, that Christ we have the authority of Christ. We are seated, seated in heavenly places with Christ, therefore we have the authority of Christ. And if God spoke things into existence, our words have the ability to create, just as God's have God has the ability to create. And if we um, are children of God, then we have this ability to create. So faith is actually a force, a force that when we speak things and we believe, you know, um, just like he says, um, pray and believe that these things will happen, and, and what you pray for, you'll receive, that you have to have faith that your words will create your reality. And it's actually seated in a lot of the mind science, like, um, what is that, uh, Scientology, mm-hmm. these kinds of things. It goes way back to certain people and I can't even think of them. I should know because I, I know all about it, but I can't think of the names right now. But that's that's where the faith is, is comes in and why they say you just don't have the faith for this to happen. That's what they're talking about is that you actually create these things with your faith. It's almost like a little God type of uh, theology. And, and, and to greater and lesser degrees across the board, there's not every uh, camp that you're in that would, that would say that or that as much experience, but certainly that's what <coughs> I was taught. And um, and it is very devastating because you had a situation where um, that Mike's story with, um, <laughs> is it your grandmother? Uh, my mother-in-law. mother-in-law. <laughs> That's right. I messed all that up. So He um, actually, in church, um, I started uh, miscarrying my child. And they all, the church, you know, and declarations and decrees are um, big things. I declare, I decree. It's not praying. It's not petitionary pr- prayers. Like, you, that's weak prayer. Don't pray this prayer. That's not even, they don't even consider that praying. You have to declare this is going to happen. And if you don't take authority over it, it won't happen. Because if you won't, God can't. And that's literally how, how it is. So then this happened, and they decreed, declared I would not lose this child. And, of course, I go home thinking, I'm not going to lose this child because that's not, not going to happen. And I did. And it shattered. It shattered me. And I just... By the grace of God, did not lose my faith, but it was really difficult. Hmm? It was really difficult yep. because I was 12 years in this and could not understand why God took my child mm-hmm. when it was supposed to happen. That's right. And the only place you can come back to is you didn't, you were the one, you were the problem. I was told, well, the problem's not God, it's never God. God is you. You just didn't have faith. And that was told like straight to my face, like bald like that, like no, no compassion, you know, because they, they don't want to be questioned. They don't want to be pushed on their, 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 their stance. So, and it's, diff- it's a very cold, it's a very cold place to be. So, and that, and that's what's wrong with it. Mm. <coughs> yep. Not usually because I'm like, I won't let it happen. I'm like, you, what are you going to tell me?
And God took her eventually. I'm sorry about that, Sam. Let me, let me, I'll just say a short prayer for you, Samuel. Father, I thank you that you care about even what um, the youngest of us care about. And I do pray uh, for Sam that he would know how good you are even in the face of dogs mutilating one another and the evils of just the harshness of this world. And I pray, Father, that um, we would look to you to bring a kingdom where the lion will lie down with the lamb. And I pray, Father, that you would help uh, uh, give wisdom to the adults to help Sam work through all this uh, in, in his time. And I just thank you for your, your faithfulness to us and how you do love us and, and guide us through this, this world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So I'm thinking as we're like critiquing charismatic theology, wouldn't you say that one of the underlying problems, and I guess you could say this is a despising of prophecy on their part, is a, I don't know that I've laid this at Wayne Grudem's feet, but at the majority of the charismatic movement, there is a, there's a great denial of the sovereignty of God. Mm. It's a very man-centered, like what Connie just said, God can't unless you do. And that's not what the scriptures teach. Mm. And it gives man a power that he shouldn't have. God is not really the author of faith. You have to work it up. And so I think that's why we're seeing more of a move. And I think a lot of charismatics are into this, like moving into like open theism or God, because you have to move further and further into that. Explain what open theism is. I'm going to. Okay. Open, open theism is, so many of you probably know what Arminianism is, which is basically that, that we have free will and we have to choose God. God doesn't choose us. Election isn't true. Calvinism's evil. Uh, but open theism goes further than that, further than Armenians would be afraid to go this far. Open theism teaches that, that God doesn't even know. He's just like a good guesser. Like he, he's almost like a guy who reads the stock market and, and just has really good instincts on how things are going to turn out. This is how much they need to take God's sovereignty away from him. And I, and I do think a lot of charismatics are moving more towards that way. So she just said that in the garden, God wasn't sure that Adam and Eve would fall. And so once they did fall, then he brings in Christ as like a secondary plan. So, yeah. Yes, that really do love Christ. They okay. love God. <laughs> they do. Um, I did. I thought I was doing the right thing. I, I didn't know until I 
I was illiterate. I was mm. very illiterate. I had a lot of little kids. I was just following what people told me, and I think that's the number one problem today is people don't read their Bibles, and they're just following, or they read it here and there, you know, and, and it's the proof texting and just filling things out the way that that charismatic, a lot of charismatic schools that you don't have an exegesis like Pastor Mike does. It's this proof texting here to support their, what they want to say. And um, and I didn't, until I started reading the Bible for myself, I was like, well, wait a minute, this, this is not what I'm, this doesn't match what I'm being taught. That's when God opened my eyes, and it's been extremely hard, extremely hard, but that was my whole world. It was 12, 13 years, and I had to walk away from a lot. Um, you know, kids have suffered a lot, but this is all their friends and everything, but but still, there are, I still have friends that are in that movement, and, and they love, they do, they love Jesus. A lot of them do, and there's some that, that are, mis- they have, you know, bad motives there. They just think that's what they think that Christianity is, and they've been in it their whole life. So I just pray the Lord that I am here. <laughs> so. so let me just, uh, and I want to get into the scripture here, but um, I think that the more that the Bible is your foundation, the more you understand the uh, the scripture as a whole, the effect of your charismatic understanding is minimized. It's actually controlled. And the less, the further that you, the Bible becomes less known, the greater the effect of the damage that the charismatic movement does. And so um, when I sit and talk with Tanya, I'm just appalled. These are not the charismatics that I knew in the 1970s. It's like, oh my goodness, this has gone way beyond where I was uh, at that time. And um, so just the importance, again, and this is the, the, the relevance of understanding the Bible accurately is so important, okay? Um, okay, so let me just read um, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll move into chapter 13. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Remember, we talked about that's the main point. You are very different from one another, but you're one body. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, uh, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Um, without going into each of those at this point, how would you look at the definition of higher gifts in verse 31? Desire the higher gifts. So they're listed in the order. So the highest gift would be apostle, and then prophet, and then teacher. Okay. Any other thoughts? I'm just regurgitating what he said with no comment one way or the other. So faith, hope, 
and love. I think in the very next uh, sentence it says, uh, but let me show you an even more excellent way. So I think the faith, hope, and love is dealing with the more excellent way than even these gifts. But, um, but it's possible that he's just gone down this list and these are the higher ones here. Okay, that's possible. Uh, if that's the case, then he puts tongues at the very bottom. You know, so it shows you the importance if he's doing that. But I think there's another way to understand higher gifts. See what she just said? <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> hey, those, who build, those are the ones that build up the church. The whole, the whole point of, of this section in chapter uh, 12 is that the spiritual gifts are there to build up the church. That's what we're trying to do. So the more, the more it builds up the church, the better it is. Because it's not the gift itself or the amazing nature of the gift that is great. So, if you know, hey, desire the gift of miracles. I don't think that's his point. If you're talking about a great gift, parting the Red Sea, that's a pretty great gift. You know, uh, feeding the 5,000. <laughs> so, but I don't think that's his point. Look for the most spectacular, greatest, most amazing gift. He's saying, look for the gifts that build up the church. That's what you're trying to do. Okay? So that, that, that's what makes us flow into what I think is the more excellent way. And I, you kind of had this in your thought. The faith, hope, and love is because these are the things that you're actually going for. So in chapter 13... Let's read 1 through 3. Um, Mark, you want to read that for us? If I speak by the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up all my, up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Let's start with, he's contrasting love with a list of other things, right? Um, and he's basically saying that they're less than love. Love is the, the better. So the first thing he says is that I'm contrasting love with speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. Um, when, it, when he says men and angels, I think he's using what, I, what the Bible calls as a merism. Uh, merism is like A to Z, like day and night. Um, so, a lot of times people talk about, okay, men, the various tongues of men, like the languages, and then, according to Charismatic, there's a tongue of angels, um, as if this is a, I don't know, uh, we'll call it Hebrew plus, right? It's some sort of language that they speak uh, when they're by themselves that we don't know what it is. I say Hebrew because Hebrew is the, you know, the language of the Bible, so it's Hebrew plus, it's something greater. So yeah, you got human languages, but then you have like angelic language. And so you could take it that way, but I, I think it's better to take it as uh, 
how would you say it, like the finest, most eloquent speech possible. That, that if somebody could have the rhetorical ability to speak better than an angel, there was a guy, Chrysostom, he was called golden-tongued because they believed that everything he said was so just, just captivating. It's like, um, um, uh, who's the great, uh, not revivalist, um, what's that? Whitfield, yes. I mean, people said that Whitfield could speak and people would just be like in awe, right? And so his point is not so much at this point to try to contrast um, a special gift of tongues with, with um, uh, love. It's to say, if you could be as eloquent as you could possibly be and enrapture people in your speech and get them to do what you want, persuade them to receive the gospel, but you don't have love, worthless. That's the point. Uh, anything without love is just worthless I guess if it's worthless it's not building up so Um, so then he goes into prophetic powers and understanding all knowledge and mysteries So a prophet received revelation from God, and receiving this revelation, he was able to understand the mysteries of revelation, understand what God's thinking regarding man's salvation. Uh, And and like, wouldn't you, let's say you're studying the Bible, and you're wondering, maybe you're studying this passage, what does it mean? Wouldn't it be awesome if God just directly spoke to you and told you the meaning? That'd be pretty awesome. So he's like, he's like, man, if you had the ability to have this direct line to God and he just told you exactly what he meant, understand all knowledge, but don't have love, worthless. Think about how powerful that gift would be. Think of how many people would flock to you because you would have the truth on every issue. Think how they flocked to Solomon. Right? Then he says, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, to remove mountains. Again, this idea that I can trust God with this supernatural, miraculous thing, and it actually happens. He says, ah, not that important. See how low he puts these spiritual gifts. Then in verse 3, this is one that challenges me. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned. Now these aren't even, these aren't, can't even remotely be connected with a gift. They're just things that you would value. The person, you think, you know, put your love into action. Well, it's loving to give away your, your, uh, your possessions to other people. Isn't that loving? He says, no, not necessarily. You can be doing it for Proud reasons, arrogance, wrong motivations. You don't have really true love. He says nothing. You get nothing from that. Uh, if I deliver up my body to be burned, there are people that could be persecuted because of their faith in Christ. Wouldn't you think that they would be the exalted ones? Yes, the, the martyrs. That's who we should exalt. He says, no, not that impressive. 
Not that impressive. If I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, how is he then going to begin to try to define love? If it's not defined by these wonderful, absolute, powerful gifts and works and stuff, how do I define love? What is it that, that, that helps us with this? And so, um, you would think that love is person A being kind to person B, and then person B being kind to person A, and everyone just being harmonious. Kind of like we think of heaven. Right? It's a place full of love. Everybody doing Things are good. There's no disease. We're just all kind to one another. We're experiencing God's love. You would think that's the way he would define love. But that's not the way he defines love. Let's read verses 4 to 7. Uh, somebody raise your hand and Barry will give you a mic. Anybody? Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Excellent. So this kind of love where person A does does something good to person B and person B does something good to person A, or A is there's nothing wrong with that. Paul would just say that's at the bottom rung of the of the whole thing. That's down here. And let me show you a different type of love. And this type of love is more along the lines of loving your enemy. That's what love is. Um, because God has a world where person A and person B, even if they're Christians, still possess evil in their hearts and do evil things. Do you want to know the excellent way? It's not just having power to do stuff. It is having the power to still love another person when they have done evil to you. That's the greatest expression of the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, you're sitting in church and you hear the pastor challenge you that if God has blessed you with good gifts, you should share those with other people. So you're moved by this, by the Holy Spirit. You desire to be a blessing. And even though it's going to be a sacrifice to you, you are willing to say, okay, I'm going to put aside some money, say $1,000. And I'm going to help someone else with this $1,000 as a good gift. I would say it's a very loving thing to do. Paul would say it's down here on the lowest rung. Now suppose the person that you gave that gift to, you pass walking down the street. They're with their friends. You're walking by. And you say to them, hi, how you doing? And they turn their head and keep walking the way. Away, don't give you any thanks. No, no, you know. Hey, how are you doing? It's good to see you. They just ignore you. What are you thinking at that moment? 
that scoundrel. Get him. Take him down, man. They're thoughtless. Don't they understand what I've done for them? I've given everything. Paul says, even if you've given your whole life and you gave it, and then you, they turn around and they spite you. When you respond to that with love, you're beginning to understand what the Holy Spirit does in someone's heart. See, this is the extreme way, the more excellent way. Oh, but I thought that if I got more of the Spirit, I'd have greater powers. I could speak God's prophecies. I could speak in tongues. I can do these other things. He said, that's nothing. Love somebody in the face of their hatred towards you and their lack of love towards you. Then you understand the work of the Spirit. He says, love, verse 4, is patient and kind. Right in the face of someone not treating you well when they ought to have treated you well. Kind. Can you be kind to that person? even when they have treated you disdainfully. Then there's another situation. Love doesn't envy or boast. So now, let's just take the illustration further. That same person was out of work, and you helped them. Now they've got a better job than they ever had before. Are you happy for him? Or are you jealous? Especially if they have a better position than you do now. Do you envy? Or do you boast? I'm better than them, even though they think they're better than me. That's what Paul is saying. The Spirit of God produces in us an attitude of joyfulness when others are being blessed. Even if that other person is someone we don't like. Can you be happy for that other person? <clears throat> Think about the, the Corinthians. They were arrogantly boasting over other people in the church because they had better gifts than the other person. Paul's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with you guys? <clears throat> Love is not arrogant or rude. I think about my mother-in-law. She was very kind to her sisters-in-law, even when they were belittling her faith. That's why I think that she demonstrated Christ's love in that situation. Love does not insist 
on its own way. This is a big one in the church. Because what we do is we attribute my way with the right way. And therefore, if I don't get my way, we think that it's, it's somehow an offense against God. And God's sitting back saying, yeah, I actually am trying to help you understand the way of love so you don't get your way all the time. It is not irritable or resentful, right? Think about how easy it is to resent when others are put forward. I could be resentful that the Reformed Church is this small, basically blip. When we were in seminary, our professors would sometimes tell us, you guys think that you're so important. In the scheme of Christianity, you are like a blip. Like, like nobody even thinks about the PCA in terms of the whole scope of Christianity. Don't get so inflated about yourself. Boy, I need to hear that more often. But we could be resentful. Why, why is the charismatic church booming and growing and, and we're not? So, have resent towards others. Well, am I happy when God uses a charismatic church to save somebody's soul? Or do I resent that? <clears throat> Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Love lets it go. A lot of times we have these discussions, you know, what does it mean to forgive? Well, sometimes you can't forgive unless somebody asks you to be forgiven, but you can not keep a record of wrongs. At the same time, love rejoices in the truth. So you can't just buy into somebody else's lie. I hope that I'm trying to be loving as I teach this lesson because I think that some of the charismatic understanding is actually harmful to people and therefore I'm trying to teach the truth, not to condemn charismatics or not to think I'm better than them, but because the truth matters and it's helpful. So you rejoice with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures. This is a summary statement. And the idea is that we, we bear with one another. I can't tell you how many people say, oh, I'm leaving that church because someone hurt me in that church. Well, maybe God allowed in his sovereignty, allowed you to be hurt in that church so that you could learn what it means to love. But instead, we just walk away. <clears throat> Do you believe all things? Do you believe that God can continue to work even in the person that has hurt you? And so you just you continue to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to act kindly. I'm not going to act out in vengeance. I'm going to, you know, that's the attitude that he wants. And you have this hope. God, please do this. Even while you're continuing to endure. Now, at the same time, Paul is expressing the more excellent way. 
The fact of the matter is, not one of us is completely full of love like Christ was. We'll have our limits. <laughs> we all come to the point where I can't take any more. And that's okay. But don't then say, well, because I've got this gift, I'm superior. You, you, you just basically are admitting, I need more to be more like Christ. Questions or comments on this section? The church as, as a family is from other organizations. You know, we have different get-togethers in our neighborhood, and it's, you know, the call that how we are to behave is just so much higher, mm -hmm. you know, than what the organizations of the world are called to do or even cared to do. Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue to you, just because he says this is the most excellent way, don't think that it should be easy for you to adopt it. I mean, I think this is why we, our heart gets broken. If you get really deeply hurt, you're just like, Lord, I can't love this way. And so what does it do? It drives you to Christ. And it says, only if you have love in me will I ever be able to love the person who has hurt me. And that's what God wants. And you can just see how the, the Corinthians were like desiring all these great gifts, and they're being arrogant. They're not doing any of the things that Paul's wanting them to do. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, so, um, so there is a sense of uh, what is continued love and what is um, uh, what maybe just like allowing uh, continued, uh, I'll just say abuse or pain or attack. Um, they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Um, and you'd have to take it in a step-by-step, case-by-case -step, uh, -case scenario. Um, but I think that uh, maybe in a short answer, um, if someone were to come up to you and punch you in the face, you don't just sit there and keep letting them beat on you. Um, that's maybe a physical. At the same time, you may even want the criminal law to actually put them in jail for what they've done for stealing, you know, at the same time you do, every person has to then wrestle in their heart with is my, um, is my being hurt? Does it justify uh, not wanting that person to be saved? Does it justify um, uh, in a sense, pouring out my own vengeance on them? Um, so, I don't know, I'm trying to not go into specific situations, but just think generally. But I've read enough historically that most wars, and I'll get you, Mark, most wars and atrocities go like this. Um, some evil man does something or woman does something to someone else, 
And then in retribution, that maybe the whole society rises up and they wipe out another whole society. Um, and there's just like atrocity after atrocity. And it just keeps escalating. At some point, you have to stop and say, I'm not going to choose vengeance. And in my heart, I'm not going to allow myself to still have bitterness and hatred to, to leave it into the hands of the Lord at the same time, I'm not going to purposely put myself in a situation where I can continue to be uh, hurt again. So let me get Mark's comment because it might be better than mine, and then we'll see if it actually answers. Go ahead. I don't know about that, but uh, you know, what you were just saying, you know, just war theory was based on that and the idea of not continued escalating uh, a, uh, a war, <laughs> acting in such a way in a war that hardens your opponent's heart mm -hmm. and hatred. Because ultimately you want to love them and you want to reconcile with them. But what I was going to say is, is, you know, Romans 12, at the end of Romans 12, same writer, Paul's talking about don't return vengeance, don't return evil for evil, but leave room for, for the Lord. And I think that we can love the way God's called us to love because we leave judgment to God. Mm -hmm. And and I was talking. That makes me think of this. I was having a conversation with my son-in-law, and he was asking me about the situation with his neighbor. There's been abuse. They've, they, they've definitely taken him for granted and done things that have hurt him. And he's trying to be very loving. <coughs> and I just reminded him of that. That you know, you leave that to God, but also realize this: that should motivate you to continue to be loving. Because if God meets pure justice upon you, it's worse than anything He could ever ever do to you. Mm -hmm. Your neighbor could ever do to you. And so continue to love him, continue to be gracious. I'm not saying be abused, but, but always leave the door open and continue to be kind, continue to do what the Bible says, and leave justice to God. Mm -hmm. Let God determine, but just make sure you're being an instrument of the gospel for that. And I would say that um, this is where the body of Christ can be helpful. So if there is an a abusive situation, it is the responsibility of others around you to actually um, protect the weak and the ones who are abused. And so um, those sorts of things uh, are very important. That's a, that's a great question, and I'm not sure that I've answered it well yet. So maybe after today, you can come and ask me some more, and maybe we'll even start next week with trying to flesh that out a little bit more. Um, we are almost the end of chapter uh, 13, we're in verse 8, and then we'll pick up next week right there. Um, Father, thank you for this time, and um, I do pray that you would make us full of your Spirit, because only your Spirit can love in the face of evil. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen.